according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Proverbs. We uh, are wrapping up chapter 11 this morning. Proverbs chapter 11. I said that last week, didn't I? We're going to wrap up Proverbs chapter 11 this morning. All we have left is verses 30 and 31. And uh, some principles of application here, and then we'll be ready to move on into chapter 12 next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. I'm not aware of any upcoming. There will be one Wednesday in March, March 15th, if you want to mark your calendar there, uh, that we won't have a Proverbs class because of the Schaefer Conference. Uh, But other than that, I'm not aware of any upcoming Wednesdays. All right. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. If, uh, we've got to deal with this in the tree of life principles. And then uh, verse 31, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. And so we've got a pair of verses here, a tandem that we want to handle. And, and the imagery that comes when you're talking about the tree of life, when you're talking about this earth, And uh, the contrast, of course, to this earth is the one to come and the new heavens and new earth that you and I are looking forward to uh, in which righteousness dwells. You might have heard that. And uh, the blessings that we have while we're waiting for that to manifest is uh, is us and the blessings of us and uh, the things that are already here. And uh, we want to talk about that as well. So before we do start, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to humble us and to prepare our hearts for the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for this morning and the truth of your word. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless us with this message. Father, I thank you for Proverbs. I thank you for the very practical way that it comes alive and is so universal. Uh, spans, uh, really spans every dispensation, Father, and applicable in the age of Israel and the church age and the coming tribulation, the coming millennium, and the new heavens and new earth, Father, the fullness of time. For a thousand generations, Father, the Proverbs will be applicable, and I thank you for that. So, Father, uh, open our eyes this morning. Show us uh, what we need to learn, what we we need to live. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, this is, uh, all of these are subpoints under main point 12 in the outline, whereby we took the remainder of the chapter and found uh, a theme. And uh, as we see here, main point 12, most of the verses in in verses 16 through 31, refer in some way to the rewards of righteous and kind living. And that's what we're dealing with, the rewards of righteous and kind living. And that includes the fruit that we bear in the righteous and kind living. Remember, this is far beyond anything that uh, humanity can replicate or counterfeit or try to, uh, try to produce on their own. All right? They can try to be nice all day long, but what they're producing is not a tree of life. All right? They can try to to have a, 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 an earthly application of morality. They can try to replicate something that is a, a facsimile of the Christian way of life. But what they are producing is not a tree of life. 
They have a darkened soul that is producing the unhealthy fruit that we understand. A good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And if we are producing the tree of life, what are they producing? Death, all right? Constant death. And remember that all of these things that have the appearance of religion are uh, of no value, right? No value against fleshly indulgence. And so whatever you substitute for the Word of God is not a substitute, and it does not accomplish what the Word of God accomplishes. And so as we get down to this then in uh, sub-point H, uh, we're dealing with the tree of life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And I don't know if you thought about it or not, but that's almost like, a, a, that's, that's almost like an upside-down metaphor, right? Because a tree has fruit on it. A tree, you can take fruit off of a tree. But for us to say, well, our fruit is a tree, that, that turns the imagery upside down, right? If I'm holding a fruit... I don't care, an apple, a banana, whatever. If I'm holding a fruit, I'm holding a fruit. I'm not holding an entire tree in my hand. Except this proverb says I am. That my fruit is a tree of life. See? And so it reverses the metaphor and it it makes the application for us because we're the ones that are bearing fruit. And remember the fruit we bear, of course, is what God bears through us as we're abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. We have a lot of our New Testament truth that, that can expand this. But here we have it. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. A tree of life. Okay? And so we want to understand it in this context and how it connects, obviously, to the historical and eschatological trees of life that did exist, that will exist, and, and what their functions were then and what they will be then, and what our tree of life function is now. Because this is what we provide in the here and now. We are commanded to bear fruit. And it's, it's more than just if we do, we're rewarded eternally. If we don't, we're, we, we suffer loss of reward eternally. It's bigger than that. The fact is right here, right now, in the bearing of fruit, there is a provision that's made for us and for others in time. And this uh, we want to have clear. So uh, let's go back to Genesis 3. Let's see what we're looking at, or Genesis 2 even. And see what we're looking at. Genesis 2, where we can see the tree planted and the command that's given. And the the expectation there. All right. So, um, Genesis 2 and the... um, planting of the uh, plants and the shrubs and the water and the mist and all this stuff here in the early verses. Uh, Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or I like the breath of lives, plural. And uh, man became a living soul. The man became a living soul. Without the the lives that God breathed into him, uh, he was not a living soul. But now he is a living soul. And so the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Remember, not all earth was Eden and not all earth was a garden. But the garden was planted in Eden and uh, there he placed the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So all the normal trees uh, from which they could eat 
And then these two extraordinary, special, significant named trees. All right. And, you know, if a tree has a name, that's a special tree. There's something about that tree, right? We're talking about a given name. We're not talking about, you know, cedar trees, uh, birch trees, elm trees, maple trees. You know, we're not talking about a kind of tree where the class is named. We're talking about individual trees that have specific uh, given names, right? Proper names. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, there they were. So, um, other aspects are here. By the way, I recommend um, that uh, you could study this on some basis and and develop it out for a home study or uh, something of that nature. Uh, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. And what is the purpose for rivers? And why do rivers divide? And what do rivers do besides supply water? They also demark uh, boundaries. There are sides to every river. You know, this side and that side. The left side and the right side. Depending on uh, if you're flowing downstream or upstream. Um, the, uh, and, and what else is happening here? So there's uh, a river and then it divides. And then there's more division. There's subdivision and boundaries that happen here. Uh, the name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. And what do you notice? There is a land. And in all of this, there's a land. There is territory called Eden. And guess what? Outside of Eden is not Eden. Okay? But inside Eden is Eden. And then there's Havilah. And guess what? Havilah is not Eden. And outside of Havilah is not Havilah. And this river that flows around Havilah is the boundary of Havilah. All right? Rivers, boundaries, land, names. Names are significant. Why are names significant? Well, because names determine authority. If you have authority, you give the name. If you lose your authority, then uh, someone will come along and rename this place. Okay? And it'll get a new name based on who's in charge. All right. So the gold of that land is good. Bedellium, onyx stone are there. How about that? The gold of that land is good. That, that gold belongs to that land. So you have mineral rights, you have water rights, you have principles that are given with respect to geography, with respect to natural resources, God-given blessings of wealth that are provided. And if Havilah's land has better gold than some other land, well, that's the way God put it there. All right? And uh, understand it for what it is. We're not going to march in protest and complain about the unequal distribution of gold in Bedellium and Onyx. All right. The name of the second river is Gihon. I uh, know, I'm getting in trouble. Gihon, it flows around the whole land of Cush. Well, guess what? Here's a different river. Gihon is not uh, Pishon, and, and Cush is not Havilah, is not Eden, and so forth. And what does Cush have going for? Well, this verse doesn't tell us. Uh, the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. All right, so anyway, all of these principles are there. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. This becomes key. To cultivate it and to keep it. To guard it, to defend it, to keep it. The verb shamer is a verb that speaks of watchfulness, alertness, guarding, protecting, defending. And uh, understanding that the... Uh, 
the, the actual cultivation of the earth. The earth was not created self-cultivating, right? And this is before sin. This is before the fall. You know, before sin, you don't just have fields that weed themselves. You don't just have a farmland that cuts its own trees down and plows. and No, you have to cultivate. Cultivation requires the hand of man. God put him there to work it. The gold had to be dug up. So uh, recognize this is not consequence of, this, of the fall. It's not consequence of sin. The need to cultivate was pre-sin, pre-fall. The assignment of work, by the way, is pre-sin, pre-fall. So these things we want to keep in mind for what happens in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's no more sin, no more death. But is there still a, a work requirement? Is there still a cultivation expectation? All right. So the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And so here is a tree that's planted. By the way, this is not replanted on the new earth. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not planted on the new earth. So is there a chance that in those thousand generations then we can have another Adamic fall? Not a chance. That tree won't be there. <laughs> and for other reasons. Human volition is going to be locked into the positive polarity as far as as uh, we understand it there. Now, verse 17 says nothing about the tree of life. Notice that? Nothing said from it at all. The one that's banned is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So all the fruit trees, all the food trees, apples, bananas, pomegranates, whatever they want to eat, great, eat whatever you want to eat. And from the tree of life, Eligible to eat from the tree of life, expected to eat from the tree of life. It's not prohibited, it's not mentioned, it's included in every other tree in the garden. The only one that is not to be eaten from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, reading from Genesis 2 and verse 17. Nothing is said about the tree of life, it's included with every other tree. The only one that's banned is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And notice, on the day you eat from it, not 950 years later, on the day you eat from it, dying you will die. And we want to understand this because this references spiritual death. has nothing to do with physical death. They did not drop dead physically the day they ate. They lived 900, Adam, we don't know about Eve, but Adam lived 950 years after he ate this fruit. And then he died. But on the day that he ate it, he died. He died spiritually. And that's the provision. That's the curse. Spiritual death. And God assigned that spiritual death to Adam and to everyone in Adam. All of Adamic humanity is spiritually dead by Adam's sin. Because one man sinned, all sinned. All right. So, the um, hasn't sinned yet, not until chapter 3. Um, so the command is given to the man without his helper present given to the man in verse 17. Don't eat from that tree. So the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And then here comes this. Notice though, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to man to see what he would call them. Now notice, did God named Eden and Havilah and Cush 
and, and Pishon and all these rivers. God's given all these names. God gave the names to the, to the, uh, the trees. But then when it comes to the animals, he uh, makes the animals, but then he brings the animals to the man and says, all right, what do you want to call this thing? Okay? And again, we're talking classes, kinds of names, right? He said, okay, this, this is a cow. And so every cow was called a cow. He didn't give individual personal given. He didn't say, this is Fred, this is Jim, this is Bob. So he just named the, the animals for what they were. Why does he do that? And what does that mean, by the way? It means he's got sovereignty. It means if you're the one given the names, right? If you're given the names, you have sovereignty. So, I uh, gave names to all the cattle, the birds, sky, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so the recognition that the animal realm of creation serves its purpose, but its purpose is not the helper to the man. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. All right? And this gets me in trouble, but I just, I, I'm telling you what I see. And here it is, okay? What is the purpose for animals? It's not companionship. People find companionship with their animals. Great, happy for you, glad you do. That's not why God did not put them there for companionship. They were deficient for companionship. There was no helper suitable for Adam. The companionship, the soulmate, the helper, the corresponding uh, partner in that male and female operation is uh, the woman. All right. So, uh, we know how this works. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up at at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman, right? Male and female, he created them. Why is our culture so insane? Why have they lost this? Why is this so complicated for these people? All right, brought her to the man. And notice, what does the man do? He names her. He names her twice. She is a woman, but that's not her name. He names her Eve, the mother of the living. And so she has a classification name like, you know, goat, cow, chicken, elephant. You know, he named all the animals. He named the woman, woman, because she came out of man. And then he gave her a personal name. Right? All right. I'm not saying you're sinning if you name your cat Fifi and whatever. And we have personal names we give to cats for whatever reason. We do. It helps us, especially if we have multiple ones. We want to keep, you know, Tommy separated from Heathcliff. And and I get that. Okay? Snowball. It was the dumbest cat we ever had as a kid. I had cats all over the place as a kid. Snowball lived his whole life behind the refrigerator. That was a waste of time. <clears throat> Constantly terrified of all of us. Come creeping out at night to eat and then back behind the refrigerator during the day. All right, don't get me lost on this. I'm going to finish this today. Maybe not. Um, but But this is vital, okay? Because... Was, 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 was Eve around to hear the command? Not at first. Not at first. The woman, we don't have the woman until, you know, the end of chapter 2. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You should be called woman. She was taken out of man. All right. For this reason, based upon the divine order of creation, that's what for this reason's about. A man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife. God designed humanity on this basis with a male and female generational assignments so that, yes, offspring are under a parental authority until such time as they step into their own generation. And then it's one man, one woman in the next generation. And then be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. All right. So there it is. Now, they fall in chapter 3. Serpent comes along. Why is he there? The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Notice, he's not a beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He is more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So he's not included in that list. He's not included. He's not, he's not the craftiest of all. He is more than any. You understand the difference? That means the serpent is not a zoological animal. He is an angelic being that has assumed a material form that's interacting with, with um, Adam and Eve here. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And he twists the word of God. He twists the command. That's what Satan does. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now she's wrong about that. And and, and we don't know why she added a commandment. There's nothing wrong with touching it. God didn't say don't touch it. You could touch it. You could spit on it. You could climb it. You uh, you You could chop it down and not defy the command of God. God just said don't eat from it. So the idea of not touching it. Now, a lot of speculation and commentaries and legends and rabbinic theories and my theories and whatever else, you know, um, why did she add that little bit in there? Was it because, what was it? Was it her own attitude? Was it her own pride? Was it her own uh, sour grapes? Was it her own... um, or, or was she legitimately, we were told, First uh, Timothy tells us she was deceived. Did she, did she honestly think that was the command? Did she misunderstand it? How well did her husband teach her the command? See, I see a couple of issues here. First of all, Adam was commanded to keep the garden. It's a shamerit. And if he's shamering it, why is the serpent here? So that seems like a deficiency on his part. Why, why didn't he kick that serpent out of there? And then, uh, why didn't he teach her better? You know, there's nothing wrong with touching it. Was it really Adam's issue for not teaching his wife appropriately? Or did he add to the Word of God? Did he tell her not to touch it? See, was Adam the first genius husband that comes along and says, well, if I want to leave at 10.30, I'm going to tell her 10.15. So I could tell her 10.15, then we can possibly be ready and out the door by 10.30. Okay? Husbands do that from time to time. So maybe Adam told Eve, don't touch it. Okay? 
Because God said, don't eat from it. And so Adam comes along and says, don't eat from it and don't even touch it. Perhaps, okay? I'm just speculating here, but I don't believe anyone can accuse me of speculating on something that's totally out of the bounds of possibility. It seems very reasonable. That perhaps the husband himself added the prohibition to not touch it. In any event. Um, clearly though, something in her words or something in her thinking is reflective of a uh, a heart that really wants to do what she's told not to do because she's she keeps staring at it. And... Um, Verse 6, you know, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Why would she keep staring at it that way? I mean, if you know it's off limits, why do you keep looking at it? If you know it's a sin, why do you keep thinking about doing it? You know, why do you go to those kind of places or watch those kind of movies or daydream about that kind of thing? You know what's wrong. So you think just fantasizing about it is a a useful substitute? What are you doing? Yeah, keep thinking about it. It's going to happen. You're going to do it. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And and uh, and there you have it. Anyway, I just see a whole prolonged uh, uh, activity there in verse six. Anyway, the serpent's lying to her. He's able to work with this now. Uh, She adds to the command of God's word and says, "You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die." And Satan jumps out there and says, Aha! You surely will not die. Oh, you were told wrong. God lied to you. God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now, you go, so there's a progression. In step one, you just question, does the Bible really say that? And then step two, you contradict what the Bible really says. And here's, here's what we deal with day by day by day. Right? Our children go through this. Teachers are telling, you know, parents are telling children and teachers are telling children and friends are telling children. Does the Bible really say that's a sin? And then you get the question going, you get the question going, oh, come on, it's old-fashioned, whatever, whatever. And then you follow it up with, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that's a sin. No, no, the Bible says that's great. You go from questioning to defying. And that's what we see here. All right. So she, uh, she looks about it, she thinks about it, she wants it, she does it. And there's that progression from wanting to do something to deciding to do something to doing something. And uh, somewhere along that slide, that spectrum is when you actually go carnal. And uh, that's a different sermon. All right. So she ate. Now, when she ate, her eyes were not open yet. Not until he eats. That's key. She gave also to her husband with her. Well, now, how long was he there? Her husband with her. And here's a long set of debates and discussions and theories. She gave also to her husband with her. Well, how long had he been standing there? Was he standing there from verse 1? Was he standing there the whole stinking time? Was he listening to all this? Did he let her listen to the snake? Did he let her eat what he knew she shouldn't eat? He didn't say that she took and... And then she walked across the garden and, you know, three hours later she brought him the fruit and didn't tell him what it was. No, he was there with her, it says. And he ate. Commentary on this in 1 Timothy says she was deceived, but he was not deceived. He willfully, defiantly knew what he was doing and did it anyway. 
even though he didn't have to. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. You see that? It is Adamic consequence, not Evic consequence. It is the Adamic consequence. Her eyes were not opened until he sinned. And then both of their eyes were opened. The man and that which he was responsible for. And they knew that they were naked. The significance sin gave them that sense of guilt, which they didn't have in their innocence. The end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. Shame comes through sin. Shame does not come through um, the holiness of being in the will of God. Now all of that is to now get to this tree of life, which comes at the end of chapter 3. Um, they, they take some steps in the meantime to try to cover their nakedness, and no, no human effort can cover the, 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 the ugliness of sin. So fig leaves is useless, and uh, God has to cover them. And in order to cover them, he, uh, somebody has to die. And it's an animal that has to die. And uh, the shedding of blood. Remember, the animals are a realm of creation that, are, that have a kinship with humanity because they are mortal. They have blood. They have breath. And so you can shed that blood and you can, uh, and you can consume that animal. And you can shed that blood in obedience to, to the commands in order for sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. All right. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention this. Before they sinned, what would have happened if they wouldn't have eaten anything? If they didn't eat an apple or a banana or those other trees? And, you know, let's just say they never ate anything. What if Adam would have said, okay, we're not going to eat from the bad tree, so let's just never eat anything at all? What do you think? They die. Yeah, yeah. They would die. They needed to eat. Humanity, I'm talking ad, a sinless, Adamic, sinless humanity needed food. That's why they were given food. That's why they were given trees. And so they ate. And what happens when they ate? I'm going to get crude this morning. They ate, right? Death. Botanical death, plant death, apple death, banana death, fruit death, whatever the case. You pluck a fruit off the tree, you just killed that fruit. And then you eat it. And then what happens? Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, we know what happens. It passes, it goes in the mouth, passes through the body, and is eliminated. That's not sin, folks. Sinless Adam was eating. All right. So the, uh, the uh, provision for physical life, the provision for physical um, healing, all of these things were, were given prior to sin. The consequence of sin was spiritual death, nothing more. Physical death is not a consequence of sin. And what we see here, and, in, and please write that down and think about it because it's different than how most people teach it. So when they sin, and then God covers them, uh, more death, the animals have to die, and uh, now uh, uh, their blood is shed so that their skin can clothe them, and they're going to be the nakedness will be covered by the skin of the animal, even as their sin is covered by the, the shed blood and the sacrificial substitutionary atonement. 
But then here comes the unthinkable in verse 22. The Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, eat and live forever. And that is what's unthinkable in the plan of God. For fallen man, for fallen man to obtain eternal physical life as a, as a, as a dead, as a mortal, uh, as a dead and dying human. See what I'm saying here? All right. Before the redemption can be made in Christ for eternal spiritual life, for Adam to eat of that fruit and have an eternal physical life as a fallen man, that's unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. And so they get driven out of the garden. So therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had taken. Now he's got to cultivate something that's not a garden. <laughs> okay? He just made his work that much harder. I mean, had he been obedient, he could have, been, could have stayed cultivating this garden. Now he's out of the garden, he's got to cultivate something not a garden. He's got to turn wilderness into a garden and then cultivate that. And it's going to have weeds, it's going to have thorns and thistles, as we're told in verse 18. Thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, part of the curse. All right. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. What's a cherubim? Okay. It's our first use of the word cherubim. And answers in Genesis has no answers. This is part of questions in Genesis. Okay. Because uh, cherubim are not mentioned in, in anywhere in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 until right there. The first use of cherubim. And sword, what's a sword? He stationed the cherubim in the flaming sword. So there's more questions than answers in Genesis. All right. Which turned every direction and to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is the circumstance until such time as, I believe, the flood destroyed all of the, 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 the pre-flood geography. And so once uh, Noah and they got off the flood, got off the ark, there was no need. The tree of life is gone by that point. And there's no need for this circumstance. So, again, write it down, think about it, pray about it. Physical death was not the consequence of Adam's sin. The consequence of Adam's sin was spiritual death, and only spiritual death. All right? On the day you eat of it, dying you will die. On the day you eat it, they didn't die physically that day. They died spiritually that day. See? When you go to Romans 5, when you study the theology on this, it's through one man, death entered the world, or sin entered the world, and death through sin. That spiritual death has nothing to do with physical death whatsoever, or animal death, or plant death, or any other kind of death. Only spiritual death. Because the provision that's made through faith in Christ is what? Spiritual life. Through one man, life is now provided, the spiritual life in Christ. You don't believe on Jesus Christ to receive physical life. You don't believe on Jesus Christ to receive any other kind of life but the spiritual life, the Zoe life that's, that's eternal life in Christ. And so these things should be simpler than I think too many people make them out to be. Alright, so there's the tree of life. Now it's going to be restored on the new earth. And we're going to see this here in Revelation 22. By the way, it's also part of the uh, promise in uh, chapter 2 and verse 7 to uh, one of the seven churches there. 
to Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, and so that's a promise to the overcomers in the in the message to the seven churches. But uh, beyond that, replanting the uh, tree of life on the new earth, we read about that in Revelation 22. Now keep in mind, after the millennium, in chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment and all the unbelievers are cast in the lake of fire, the fallen angels are cast in the lake of fire, all things are made new. To start chapter 21, there's new heavens and a new earth that we're looking forward to, in which righteousness dwells, and here it is. And in this, there's, uh, it says in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. No more death. No more mourning, no more crying or pain. The first things, okay? That is, the aspects of sin are gone. The, um, we now have all things made new. He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is what we have to look forward to. So we get to chapter 22. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the land. Now, there were a lot of rivers in Eden. There were a lot of rivers we read about in Genesis. Uh, Pishon and Gihon and all, remember those? Uh, Tigris and Euphrates. But were any of those the river of life? The river of water of life? It was never mentioned. It was never mentioned. But here is uh, something new. And then in the middle of the street, on the other side of the river, was the tree of life. There it is. Replanted on the new earth. The tree of life. We're told previously it was in the paradise of God, but now it's planted on the new earth. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit. That's a unique kind of tree. You know, today is the first day of February. You know, does that mean that the tree gets a new fruit for the month? A fruit of the month? How does that work? Kind of curious. Or do they bear all 12 every month? You know, just pick a branch, you know, find, find the branch you want because there's 12 kinds of fruit on the same tree. Doesn't say, I don't know. But yielding its fruit every month, I kind of think it's monthly. And it's uh, leaves of the tree. Notice now the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now here's something interesting. So we have the fruit with a function and the promise to the overcomer we get to eat of that fruit. But then there's the leaves. What's the use of the leaves? Do you eat the leaves? Do you crush them up? Do you brew them in a tea? What do you do? Inquiring minds want to know. For the healing of the nations, right? Or the health of the nations. If there's no more sickness, death, pain, if there's no more, why would they need healing? But they do need health. All right? And so we have... We have provision that's made here for mortal humanity to live long enough to have a thousand generations. Remember, we're in the resurrection. We're not procreating. We're in the resurrection. We're glorified. We're, we're uh, like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. But the, the residents, the citizens of the new heavens and new earth, they are still procreating. They're procreating like you won't believe. For a thousand generations, they're procreating. And they've got to live long enough as procreators Generation 1 has to still be alive while generation 1,000 reaches maturity. And I think it's going to be to the point that generation 1,000 reaches 100 years of age. 
before then finally is the great end, abdication, when Jesus Christ delivers up the kingdom to the Father. So um, the healing of the nations, the health of the nations, the provision of the tree of life is to regenerate the mortal human body, the sinless Adamic mortal human body that needs to be uh, regenerated on this basis. So it's mentioned there in verse 2. It's mentioned again in verse 14. Uh, Blessed are those who wash the robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Verse uh, 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Obviously warnings that apply to the millennial age and church age and tribulation, not to the fullness of time itself. All right, so there was a tree of life, there's going to be a tree of life, and yet now, presently, even now, we bear fruit. And the fruit that we bear is a tree of life. Even now, a tree of life is manifested through the Word of God lived out in the believer's life through the word of God lived out in the believer's life. And we saw this, Proverbs 11.30. Our fruit is a tree of life. So what provision might it make? What might, uh, who might eat of the fruit that we produce? See, does it, do the fruit that we produce, do we do anything with it? If you, uh, if, you, if you gather a bunch of fruit, if you bear a bunch of fruit, if you're plucking all these apples off this tree, where do you put those apples? What do you do with it? Okay. Is this part of just storing up treasure in heaven? Or is this fruit supposed to be consumed by somebody? Are there partakers of this fruit? All right, so now we're back to Proverbs again. Again, 1130, the fruit of the righteous is, the tree, is a tree of life. And he who is wise wins souls. Ah, there's a possibility that I can win souls with my fruit, my tree of life fruit. And maybe this is going to be evangelistic. Maybe it's going to be edification. Maybe it's going to be winning back a fallen brother. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's uh, the purpose on church discipline, to win souls. Um, could also, like I say, evangelistically. Not the first time we've encountered this, by the way. Do you remember chapter 3? Uh, the contrast here of righteousness and wickedness and, and why it is we want to find wisdom and uh, we want to be living the Word of God, learning it, living it out. Her profit is better than uh, the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. That's verse 15. Long life is in her right hand. Now we're, now we're starting to approach this imagery of tree of life, are we not? Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Now that cracks me up. I love that. To me, that is God in His grace who adapts His own language based upon Eve's whatever that was with Eve, right? 
whatever that was that motivated Eve to add a touching prohibition, <laughs> okay, if it was her own pride, if it was Adam's pride, or whatever that was, God then, I think, he takes her touching thing and he says, all right, let me give you a tree of life you can touch. Okay? Yeah, here's, this is, this is, you, this is touchy-feely right here. You can touch this tree of life. You can embrace this tree of life. And you're supposed to embrace this tree of life. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who hold her fast. Okay? Here's a strong embrace. Here's a, a marital cleaving embrace. Alright? So just hug this tree. Embrace this tree. Don't let go. God's wisdom, God's word is so powerful and so intimate and so beautiful and so everything that we want to uh, we want to hug it. So that's chapter 3 and verse 18. A tree of life. And we're, we're, we're learning it. We're living it. We're bearing fruit. And it's a tree of life, not only for us, but I think for others as well as we bear that fruit and others can benefit from our production, fruit production. All right, chapter 13 and verse 12. And uh, we'll be dealing with this, but um, verse 11 says, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. There's a true accumulation that's in the, by design in the will of God, and then there's the fraudulent accumulation that is not by God's design. It's out of the will of God. It's Satan's methodology, um, stealing, and uh, in that application. And then hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And uh, think about what Satan does when he manipulates our temporal impatience and our um, uh, vulnerability then to Satan's lies when, um, when we stop hoping. When we have to wait and wait and wait and we wait so long we stop hoping. Anyway, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what happens when you finally just say, well, that's it, I'm done? taking matters in my own hands. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And there's so much to teach in that. But um, understand that the, uh, the, 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 the tree of life provision is such that we wait on His timing for the bearing of that fruit. We wait on His timing for the maturity of that fruit, for the ripening of that fruit. And in the meantime, we continue to live in this living hope. It's not a problem for us. All right, uh, then uh, the last one is in 15.4, Proverbs 15.4. You know, so many things. Why are we so impatient anyway? <laughs> you know, so thinking about that fruit and whatever it is, okay, and great illustration, you know, if you're waiting for Jesus Christ to place you in the pulpit ministry, <laughs> okay, you say, well, come on, I was ordained more than a year ago. How long does this take? Well, while you're waiting for a particular fruit to ripen, instead of growing disheartened over how long that's taking, remind yourself that the tree of life has a fruit every month. That there's something that's ripe this season. There's something that's ripe right here, right now. 
are we are we identifying with that? Are we so fixated on this other thing that we were mad at God for not bringing it about yet that we're failing to to harvest these fruits in their season? Anyway, I think it's many things to be patient with and to to learn from. Chapter 15 and verse 4, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. All right, well, got to be careful there because we're not allowed to talk about perverts anymore. Perversion. Perversion. Okay? And when you notice this, the... um, Really, one through four here, one through five. So many of these all, they go together very well. The eyes of the Lord, verse three says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. And this becomes our application in verse 31 at the end of chapter 11, right? That uh, there's a proportional reward. God's watching everything. We cannot hide from God. He sees what we're doing. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. One of the best fruit we can bear is the, the blessings of our verbal communication to others. That, that tongue blesses, that tongue curses. We want to come along with a blessing. We want to come along with the, with the verbal encouragement to, to the one who needs it. More fruit that we can bear. And so, okay, it's not the literal tree of life. Uh, if, we, if we come along and bless somebody and verbally encourage them, um, we're not going to do anything to physically heal their diseases and cause them to live forever physically but what does it take to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man what does it take while the outer man perishes the inner man is renewed day by day well how does this happen the ministry of the word of god one unto another as we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs this is what we do we are feeding one another with a tree of life what a joy to be able to do such a thing. All right. Finally then, reward is proportional. When we look at Proverbs 11:31, we have a how much more statement. How much more statement? If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more? Okay? How much more? The wicked and the sinner. And we talk about consequences. We talk about judgment, reward, and recompense. When Jesus comes at second advent, his recompense is with him. Reward is proportional between the righteous and the wicked. How much more? Yet, and we want to understand this, this is your basic law of sowing and reaping. This is your basic uh, obey God for blessing, defy God for judgment. This is your basic understanding of, of the righteous and the wicked. It has to also be uh, adjusted to understand additional truths related to un- undeserved suffering and other aspects. In other words, we don't want to just limit it to this or we get um, maladjusted. We end up like Job's accusers. So yes, reward is proportional. And the righteous are rewarded with blessings. The unrighteous are rewarded with judgments. We do reap what we sow. Those are absolute truths. They are principles of wisdom literature. We get that. Yet a greater and eternal perspective must account for undeserved suffering 
that there are seasons in which the righteous get something out of proportion. There are seasons in which the wicked get good stuff out of proportion. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. There are seasons when that happens. And so how do we combine that together with, uh, is that contradictory? Is it, is it, does it mean we're, we're talking out of both sides of our mouth? What are we saying? We're saying that there is the normal and then there's the angelic conflict. Okay? There is the normal and then there is, um, I think, there is the blessing to imitate Christ. There is the blessing to walk even as he walked. Because the ultimate undeserved suffering is Jesus Christ on the cross. You talk about the one man that didn't need to be there. And all of the other sufferings and all of the other hardships and all of the other testings. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. We get to be partakers of that. And we count that a privilege. We get to be partakers of the sufferings of Christ. And if we're not, then there's a problem. Because it's to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, it's to that degree that we also partake in the glories of Christ. And so these studies on proportion, I think, are significant. And we want to understand the, the, the basic premise, we want to understand the undeserved suffering on top of that, and then we want to understand the overall plan of God for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. If we keep those things straight, then everything else stays in the proper proportion. So Proverbs 11, 31, 2 Samuel 22, verses 21 and 25. We'll look at those verses next week. Job 4, verses 7 and 8, we'll look at next week. The problem is people stop there. And they end up just being complete legalists. And they say, good people, good things. Bad people, bad things. They see something bad you're going through and they just assume, well, you got what's coming to you. Right? And... uh, There's a greater and eternal perspective that must account for the undeserved suffering and the faithfulness of God when it appears that the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. Okay? We have more, uh, these these how much more expressions that come up that teach the principle of proportion. They're going to come up again in chapter 15, 19, and 21. We can see some of those. Also, there's a how much worse language that shows up in chapter 17 and in chapter 19. How much worse? Okay, and so those proportions are also, I think, useful to study. How much more, how much worse in this life or the next? If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, well then what about the next earth? Okay, is that what we're looking forward to? We want blessings in time and blessings in eternity. How does this come together? So we can see some of those principles there too. All right. Well, almost finished the chapter. I just We'll take a few minutes next week to kind of tie those things together and to see. I, I know I spent more time in Genesis. I probably should have. But um, anyway, these things are, I think, significant to know what that tree of life was, what the provision for humanity is, to demonstrate conclusively that the sin of Adam had nothing to do with physical death. We don't die physically because of Adam's sin. We die physically because we don't have access to the tree of life anymore. <laughs> okay? And that's the, that's the reality of it. And that's why we have physical death. All right. 
Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for Pastor Dan. Thank you for the good news in Corpus Christi. Thank you for all the blessings you pour forth um, again and again and again beyond all we could ask or think. Father, uh, help us to teach these truths to our children, to our grandchildren, to the coming generations, Father, they might live it out for the glory of Jesus Christ. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.